This is the Pluck Chicken Podcast. Well, this is just a fantastic day already. Pastor Bruss is in the house here. I thought it was quite interesting. One of our podcasts that we did here recently, we listened to the pastor pray, and you discovered so much from just listening to him pray. I heard another prayer this week, and I thought I'd let you listen to it. Good. Is it the same guy? No, different guy. Different guy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit presence here in this service. We thank you for your word, that it's alive and powerful and able to read us more than we read it. It's able to get in and discern the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work with me on this third service to bring this message fresh and relevant to the men and women who came here for this service. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give them ears to hear what you are saying Uh, to them individually. More than anything, God, I pray, oh Jesus, help me not to be boring. God, I pray for the men and women that are here today. Also help them not to be boring either. That's always horrible. In Jesus' name. (laughs) Was that him laughing at the end of his own prayer? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know. He has a very familiar relationship with God, I guess, where he can... You know, sort of chuckle his way yeah. to the end of a prayer. Yeah, right. I thought there were some interesting things in there. I, I'm sure you did too. Um, I think that it was interesting the way that he was concerned about being boring. Right. I and, mean, this is like the cardinal sin, right? You right. Mean, you've got to be relevant today. As a matter of fact, in my own prayers, besides the sacristy prayer, which we normally use, and the and the Our Father before uh, preaching. One of my things is always to ask the Lord that I would be sure not to make the sermon about me and really about the communication of his word to the people. And the issue there really isn't help me not to be boring. It's help me not to worry about being boring. Where you just get out of the way, so to speak. Correct. And there's another gap, I thought, as well, uh, a difference between, and of course we have the Holy Spirit flying at different levels here, don't we, in what he's saying. The Holy Spirit is operating on a on a different level from the preached word. I, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but it wasn't a prayer that the objective word that I am proclaiming today in your name would penetrate deeply into the hearts of these people. It was help them grab something out of what I'm preaching and apply it to themselves, uh, maybe even differently from how I intended it to be applied. Well, I wish I could go on and uh, let you hear the the rest of this sermon. Um, maybe we can circle back to it. It's, it's so messy. Hmm. I have clipped like a nine-minute clip out of it because that's the real... The that, real mess? That's what he, well, that's what he's really trying to get across. I was interested in it because he says you are not saved by your works, but the works of someone else. And I thought, this is gospel. This is, this is wonderful. And you were thinking someone else is capital S someone, Correct. capital E else. Correct. Yes. I was thinking uh, that this man was going to point everybody to Jesus, but I'll be doggone. No, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by somebody else who... Uh, came to church before you and turned the lights on and made the coffee and tuned their guitar. You're saved by their works. 
It's just a terrible law gospel confusion, isn't it? Well, okay, so speaking of law gospel, that brings us to uh, who I wanted us to, to listen to and critique today. It's our boy, Andrew Farley. In his second installment on Twisted Scripture, he starts speaking about the law, the law of God. Perfect. This is going to provide us with so much fodder, I think, uh, based upon that first one we listened to, Holy Cats. And this one, I imagine, is going to be much the same. Well, let's get right to it. All right, we're continuing our series uh, called Twisted Scripture, based on the book Twisted Scripture, and now... Okay, just for clarification, you called this the last time that we critiqued him. He referenced very quickly, never said anything about a book, but he did say chapter one. I was thinking at that point that maybe this was a manuscript that he was working off of or just a, a list of questions. I had... I had really no idea that it was a book that he's actually written. Right. You can find it on his website. I'm sure available in the, uh, the Narthex <laughs> for sale there at that <laughs> exactly. church exactly. with a cup of coffee. Cha-ching. Uh, we're in chapter two, and the lie being told by so many out there is that we get justified by works, that we're made right with God by what we do. And what is the scripture that is twisted well, here you see it on the screen, James chapter 2, verse 24. In fact, this phrase appears three times in the book of James in the second chapter, justified by works. And it just makes you put the brakes on and go, whoa, what is up with that? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So this is a challenging passage which has been distorted over the years. And some of you may recall that Martin Luther decided that the book of James should not even be in the Bible because of this challenging chapter. He decided that the message didn't fit. It didn't jive with the rest of the New Testament. So it must be off base. Therefore, we should toss it from the Bible. Now, we don't believe that around here. We believe that God spoke through the Apostle James and that there is a perfectly legitimate meaning to his words. And so this morning, we're going to get at that understanding and ask God to really open up our uh, view of this passage and see the truth that sets us free. Well, today, Lutherans have a much more nuanced understanding of the book of James than than Luther, and uh, you got to remember that during the time that he's writing his prefaces to the uh, to these New Testament books, it's right in the middle of the controversy over justification, and so naturally he came out swinging hard. As a matter of fact, there are books in the New Testament that are we talk about homologumina and antilegomena. The homologumina are, are this category of books that were universally agreed upon uh, in the early church as belonging to the New Testament canon. Then we've got uh, another group called anti-legomena, and it's a handful of books, not many of them, but these were not in universal use throughout the early Christian church. So Revelation, Hebrews, James, James, uh, just two comments, all right? So the first one is we have a more nuanced view. The second one is this, that unlike Calvinists, Lutherans don't count books as, in other words, we don't say that the canon is the 66 books. We know based upon the history of the church that certain dioceses rejected certain books of the Bible. And so 
if a pastor or a professor like Luther uh, says that he can't get along with one of the anti-legomena, we don't really get our undies in a bunch about that. You, and uh, you don't fall to me either. I mean, they came, Andrew Farley said, we don't agree with that around here. Right, right. Now, here, at uh, I operate w- with James in the canon. Um, I don't think it's the clearest book in the Bible. Um, but, you know, j- what James is talking about with this faith demonstrated by works is that there is a twofold justification, okay? There's a justification by faith alone before God, but there's also a justification that before takes man. before men, right? And so obviously faith is this living hope in a, in a Christian is going to pour forth in works. So it's two different messages then, really. I mean, one is quorum Deo, how one stands before God. The other is quorum Mundo, how one stands before the neighbor. Correct, correct. And so what James is talking about here is this coramundo justification. But I would say that anytime somebody starts giving less credence to certain books of the Bible than other books of the Bible, man, in the evangelical world, especially in the fundies to the undies type evangelical world that I came from, that, that, just, that just screams, you're liberal. Isn't that an interesting thing and and of course that's doing that's doing theology in a vacuum isn't it uh you've pointed this out so many times that you um much of modern uh, american evangelicalism operates by the false premise that 2019 is the standpoint from which to survey all of all of theology or or that it, it's just like coming true now and no one ever saw the truth right but how many books of the Bible, and I'm using uh, the air quotes here, are completely rejected. I mean, I've got, you've got books, I've got books that say, you know, books that weren't included in the canon, and rightfully so. I'm not, I'm not saying they should have been, but uh, they're, you know, they're, they're helpful to read and to think about the time frame and the context and the historical uh, context in which they were written. It just blows me away that when anybody looks at the 66 books and says there's some books in here that are not, as you said, clear as others, somehow or another this uh, impugns you as being, you know, you're not, uh, what is it, you're not a stalwart of the Bible. Right, and, and I think that the thing to point out here is not a lack of inner clarity on the part of these works. It's a lack of clarity for us in 2019 we're 2000 years away from james b we were not sitting there as he was composing this and understanding the situation in which it was composed and for which it was composed and so if you come to it if you come to james with the wrong set of lenses on if you come to james expecting him to talk like paul with paul's concerns in say galatia well James is going to sound pretty bad, but he's talking about a different kind of situation. He's not talking about the Galatians situation. So let's jump into lie number two. You are justified by faith plus good works. Now, of course, the question would be, how do you know you've done enough? When have you gotten there? When is enough enough, God? 
And so we start wondering if I'm helping somebody across the street and if I'm giving money to charity and if I'm living a pretty good life, not getting drunk, not taking illegal drugs. I'm staying away from the super bad stuff and I'm doing some of the good stuff. Maybe I've arrived, maybe I'm okay, but you could never be sure until you hit those pearly gates and they do an assessment, a survey of how you did throughout your life. And so this theology really leads to a lot of people wondering and experiencing insecurity with God, not knowing where they stand. Well, I totally agree. He's 100% on the mark. The problem is, bearing in mind the last one that we critiqued of his, right, where he was talking about baptism and it not being a water baptism. So what he's doing is he's saying, look, we've got to have a ground of certainty here. Well and good. And that ground of certainty can't be in... You know, have I done enough to please God so that when I get to the pearly gates, he's going to let me in? Very good. The question, though, becomes, in my mind, what can you point to that is your certainty? And here, ironically, it's the decision which itself is a work. And so we're going to look at this lie, you're justified by faith plus good works. First, we see that the Apostle Paul tells us the polar opposite. The Apostle Paul tells us we are justified by faith, not by works of human effort. Here we see in Romans chapter 3, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So how clear could you be there? 613 ways to please God, but not one of them is actually going to make you right with God. Again... We've got no problem with this. He's, he's right on the money, and he's citing from Romans 3.28 there. And so this is this quorum Deo. Before God, man is not made righteous by works of the law. Right. And so, again, let's keep, I think your point is very well taken. Let's keep this quorum Deo, quorum Mundo, or sometimes we'll call it quorum Hominibus, uh, in mind as we're listening through this. And, and hopefully he's done hopefully he's been able to you know see that distinction we'll find out the jews were under the law and many of them i mean this was a widespread misunderstanding you toss a, a country a couple of tablets of stone from heaven god given and what do they assume if i do these then i'm made right on top of those 10 you Add in another 603 regulations about what to wear and what to eat. And people begin to think, well, if I eat all the right things, and if I wear all the right things, and if I avoid all the bad stuff, then I'll be right with God up in heaven. And yet, the law was never given for humanity to be made right. It is a total and blatant misunderstanding of the giving of the law. In fact, we're going to discover today that God gave the law to bring a consciousness of a problem, an impurity problem, a spiritual death problem, a distance from God problem, an unable to attain problem. And that's why the law was given. Again, you know, I I really don't have any qualm with what he's saying. He's speaking about, and we'll elaborate more on the fact of the law was given for a theological use, which is that 
showing the problem, man's man's inability, man's sinfulness. And the scriptures clearly teach that the law was given for this reason. Uh, we can cite passage after passage that the law was given to increase sin. Um, and uh, the law was given to stop all mouths, stop her up all mouths so that, so that uh, they can't claim their own righteousness. That's all well and good. If you reduce the law to that only, though, there you've got a problem because the law actually does do a lot more than that. At least the Reformation view of law is this, it's huge. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It is the very ways that nature itself works. So you have, when you talk about natural law, it has both ethical implications, men sleep with women because that's how you how children are begotten, and this is self-evident from nature itself, but you can also talk about the way the heavenly bodies move. This is by God's law. You can talk about uh, gravity. Uh, the reason I put my foot down and not up in the morning is because there's such a thing as a gravity. I can't walk on my ceiling. You know, or even when uh, the Lord says uh, something to the extent of talking about the oceans, like you, this is how right. far you can come. Right, in Job, right? Thus far and no farther. So you've got all these uh, big, sort of big ideas of law, and, and to... Sh- to, to hmm. I don't want to fault him too overly much here, but the law does have a guiding. And know? see, uh, yes, and I, I'm glad you said that because the, he, tell me if if you're hearing the same thing. When he used he used the moral law just a moment ago about the ten uh, the ten commandments and the you know written on stone, and then you know just right on the heels of that he was talking about the civil law for the Israelites, the 603 laws. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's. It's like he's taking all law, and he, he's going to make a smoothie. He's going to add add it all together, and he's going to to blend it up. He's you know going to puree it and uh, mix it all together. He's not distinguishing out the purposes for which each type of law, what it. Uh, what would you say? What it uh, what it was given for? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, sure, sure. And I think that's a good point. And when you talk about the smoothie, you can think about just the lesson, the gospel lesson we had uh, two, three weeks ago, the prefatory conversation before the parable of the Good Samaritan has a, a lawyer walking up to Jesus to trick him, uh, or that's what it says basically, um, to put him to the test. And he wonders how to inherit eternal life. So Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And then he gives these two encapsulations of the first table and the second table of the law. There, clearly, there is a reduction on his part, and it's a good reduction. This is the way that God expects me to live according to the Ten Commandments. The man asks a law question. The Lord gives him a law answer. Right. And it's all well and good, correct? Uh, what The way that whole conversation goes, and you know exactly what Jesus is doing. He's trying to back him into a corner. And this is exactly what Farley's saying, that the law is given for this purpose. Among other, well, and what he has not said is that it's, is that it's given for other purposes. If I'm not mistaken, I don't think he's going to insinuate or speak at all that the law has another purpose. To instruct us in in a godly life. No, I don't. Test me out on that. Sure. So one of the things that he is getting toward, which I've I've appreciated here, is 
is that, um, and he'll never call it this, I'm, I'm assuming, is the opinio legis, right? And we should maybe define that for people who are listening. The opinio legis, uh, it's a Latin phrase, and it means the opinion of the law. Uh, the old Adam, the old creature, the natural man inside of us is born with the opinio legis. He thinks in a law way. It's the Pharisee inside of us all. Correct. And what, what he's trying to do is justify himself before God according to the law. Now, that doesn't have to be a revealed law, which is fascinating. And we actually see lots of different modes of justification in the world, even among atheists who, let, let's just take a communist atheist, right? If you're going to get on the side of communism... That's the righteous thing to do. And the law that you're observing is the law that Marx observed that economies uh, and economic man moves in this sort of trajectory toward the promised land, if you will, of full-blown communism. And so there are all these ways in which human beings are identifying laws around them and trying to justify themselves on the basis of this. This is, I think, given rise to the global warming community. You got to do the right thing because otherwise we're killing the world. But if I, if I drive an electric car, I'm no longer killing the world. I'm on the right side of the laws of nature. The list can go on and on and on. Sure. And this is not crazy. I mean, I sent you an article just this week, what took place at Union Seminary with seminarians uh, gathered around some plants and confessing their sins to the plants, right? This is, isn't that just the greatest emblem of homo se justificans, right? The human being justifying himself. Well, and you don't, I mean, that is just crazy. And to think that this is our, you know, pastors in the next not ours, not <laughs> ours. <laughs> right. They're gonna, but they're going to be out there, right? That opinion of the law that you're talking about, it can be seen. Uh, I mean, you don't have to go to Union Seminary to see it. I mean, you could go speak to somebody and just simply say, do you think you're a good person? Most people are going to automatically say yes, because, like the Pharisee and the tax collector, they're comparing themselves to somebody worse than them. Right. And I would actually say that there's a moral criterion that they're invoking, maybe even silently, when they make that comparison between themselves and the other person. You could even go to somebody who is a drug user uh, and ask, are you a good person? They would say, yes, because who am I hurting? So there's a moral law in their mind, and they're fulfilling that moral law, or at least not transgressing the moral law by hurting somebody else. And a Satanist would say something very similar. Correct. The law is much like a mirror, right? This morning, I'm assuming that each one of us, most likely, we looked into a mirror. And when you looked into that mirror, it showed you the problems with your complexion. It showed you the issues, the dirt on your face. But never once did you think about unscrewing that mirror from the wall, taking it down in order to scrub the surface of your face with that glass in order to clean yourself. So a mirror shows us the problem, but it doesn't offer a solution. Spoken like a true Lutheran. That was a great analogy. I loved it. 
And today we're going to see that's what the law did. It shows us a problem, but it doesn't give us the solution. Apart from the law, we're made right with God. Galatians chapter 3 puts it another way. It says, now, no, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Being under the law is not a try-your-best scenario. You know, we've said before how this guy never, when he was talking about baptism, didn't go to the Sedes Doctrini. But he's going to the Sedes Doctrini now, isn't he? He's doing a really good job with that. I, I think he's doing a great job. Romans 3, Galatians 3, I mean, these are quintessential texts in regarding the difference between law and gospel. But he hasn't, he hasn't mentioned gospel yet, has he? Uh, he hasn't called it by name, but he has talked about the gospel, right? A man shall live by faith and other things like that. And I, I appreciate that. It'll be interesting to see if he does adduce the term gospel and see it as the twin of law. I'm wondering how much this verges toward antinomianism you you can tell that he's already walking down that road can't you yes so let's define that for those who haven't heard that term antinomian is being against the law right so it's being against the law or the law has this very negative subs yeah subsidiary purpose so a lutheran would never say that the law only accuses they will say that the law always accuses so no matter how you use the law, whether I'm looking at it to instruct my life of godliness, uh, looking to it to curb my crude expressions of sin, whatever the case might be, it's still always going to be accusing me simultaneously. But that's not the only thing it does. And if you diminish it too much, you wind up lopping off a huge part of God's word, a huge part of God's will, and off the entire righteousness Coram hominibus, before men. And we, God expects both of these righteousnesses from us. So circling back to what we were talking about just a moment ago in regard to the gospel, this is uh, fascinating in that, as you say, the opinion of the law is already kind of at work within us, whereas the gospel is not. And it has to come from outside of us. It has to be... Well, the Lord uses means. I mean, how will they hear unless there's a preacher? And how will they have a preacher unless one is sent? And faith cometh by hearing. I mean, this is how the Lord has worked it to where the people would hear the gospel. Yes, it must be preached. I just think that's interesting that the law is already at work, and then the gospel comes from the outside. Right, it's so foreign. You would always think of the law. You'd never think of the gospel. Right. This goes against the people who would say, well, I have church when I'm out on my boat or on the golf course or what have you. Good, good. Yeah, they can go out into these wonderful places and understand that there's a creator, but they don't learn from looking out on a vista somewhere that they're sinners and that, that Jesus died for them on the cross. The latter in particular. To look at the beauty of the creation is actually to view it from the perspective of law, which is really interesting. You can't see anything salvific. No. Through nature. No. 
But it seems like we got a lot of people today, even after coming to Christ, even after trusting Jesus for salvation, they're thinking that they can pick and choose from the Old Testament law and make God happier. See, God is happy with their decision about believing in Jesus, but now that they're saved, maybe they can really impress Him. So it's Jesus plus Moses and Jesus plus law keeping and Jesus plus Sabbath and Jesus plus feasts and festivals and Jesus is going to help us keep the law, they say. And so it becomes an amalgamation of Jesus plus Moses. And here we see that idea dashed against the rocks. He says, the righteous will live by faith. And that living refers to coming alive and also living. Coming alive at salvation, but also living every day. He's exactly right that we have not been redeemed by Jesus to replace ourselves under the law for the purposes of salvation. Yeah, Paul makes this very clear, doesn't he, when he talks about the Judaizers. I mean, who has bewitched you? But again, he's, he's dealing with his, um, his law smoothie that you had talked about earlier. We've got moral law like Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you know, the moral, the moral law of the Sabbath is that there be set aside time for hearing God's word. That's the moral law. The Sabbath regulation that it has to be on Saturday is applicable uh, sort of in a ceremonial way only to the Jewish people. He's talked about feasts and festivals and other things like this. So I don't know what sect of Christianity does this kind of stuff? Can you help me out? I, well, you know, there clearly is a Hebrew roots movement. Insofar as he's identified something that people are actually doing. Right, but see, the evangelical has thrown out so much of the good gifts that God intends to give them. This is why that Hebrew roots movement is so attractive. Because it brings back what they're feeling like they're missing. And there right, is right. some assurance there. I mean, if I... If I do X, Y, and Z, then this does please God. I mean, you can, you can see just on a psychological level why this would be interesting to them. And appealing. Yeah. Rather than receiving God's righteousness and approval and justification through his means of grace. And then afterwards, just going out and loving your neighbor. Right. As the Apostle Paul puts it in the book of Galatians, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. So the question is, what is supervising us? See, that's a daily living question. What is supervising you? When you wake up on Monday morning and you're nervous about sin, what is it that brings you comfort? Is it your rule keeping? Is it the boundaries you've put up? Or is it the indwelling Christ? When you wake up and get nervous about the sins that you have recently experienced and you're hoping to do better, you're hoping that today is different, you're hoping for transformation in your thinking and your actions, what do you look to? To more rule-keeping or letting Jesus Christ rule in your life even more? This is an error that Lutheranism dealt with very early on. It's actually inside the formula of Concord. It's the question, what does our righteousness before God consist of? Now, he has rightly rejected the law, qua Ten Commandments, I guess, or, you know, Ten Commandments plus the other 603 laws of the Old Testament as being pertinent for a righteousness before God. 
But what has he done? He's pointed us not outside of ourselves to Christ pro nobis, Christ on our behalf. He's pointed us to the indwelling Christ in us, who is this like little good works factory. All you got to do is read Romans 7 and understand that even the indwelling spirit of God contends continually against the flesh. And praise God that oftentimes it gets the upper hand, but sadly, oftentimes the flesh wins out. So if this is where I'm looking for my strength. Yeah, I'm in trouble. So, I mean, did he not create a new law here? He totally did. Blowing me away. It's right. like, don't look over at this law. Do this law. He did. But this this has to do with a categorical confusion that, that, that um, as you've pointed out so many times, that when you do theology in a vacuum, you are bound to repeat errors that have been repudiated in the past. And this is exactly one of them. Uh, this guy, Andreas Osiander, uh, taught that it was the indwelling of the divinity of Christ in the baptized Christian that made that person righteous, counted righteous before God. No, it is what Christ did in Palestine in 30 AD, living the perfect life in my place, suffering the consequences for my sin, rising to break death's bonds over my body, ascending to heaven to prepare a place for me, that is my righteousness, that thing outside of me. And that's something I can hook on to. I can't hook on to the righteousness that he's starting to create in me, praise God. But boy, I'm telling you what, walk a minute in my shoes and you'll know very quickly what a sinner I am. The indwelling Christ has possessed us. We are a people of God's own possession. He made us purple. He cleaned house and He moved in, making us a royal priesthood so that we could trust Him and live by faith. This is not about getting saved only. It is about waking up every day and trusting Jesus in the moment. The righteous will live by faith. Romans 3 puts it this way, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament talked about it. Nobody understood it. The Old Testament talked about it. I'll call a people who are not my people, my people. I'll call a bunch of people who've never heard of Moses, my people. I'll call a bunch of people who never kept the Sabbath, my people. I'll call a bunch of people who never kept any of my ordinances, I'll call them my people because they're going to be made right apart from the law freely by my grace. And so this was prophesied about and predicted in the old, and yet the Jews couldn't see it. They were blind to it. They had blinders on when they read it. And yet that is our experience today. Lots of good there. I I would absolutely say that he said a a lot of things that are correct and helpful, but we got to stress what he's talking about here. Uh, The Christ who saves is the indwelling Christ and not the Christ who objectively did this in history for me, in my place, outside of me. And so people cannot but help get drawn back into their interior. They're turned in on themselves again, wondering, is this really Christ indwelling in me? My good works? Is that, is that really Jesus? What about my bad works? Does that mean that I've driven Jesus out? 
that, that his righteousness doesn't cover me? Anyone who finds Christ outside of himself can answer those questions, yes, his righteousness covers me. Why? Because he gave the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, even the ones I'm committing now. And, you know, this is a, a minor point, but to say that the Old Testament Jews were oblivious to this, that's, that's a little much, don't you think? I mean, that, that's making it sound like, again, it wasn't until the 1970s that we were able intellectually to pull this off and to understand what God was saying. He's been saying it all along, and people have been following it and believing it. I don't know. I just thought that was a, a wee bit dismissive. I think it is a wee bit dismissive, and it, it, it is particularly dismissive when you think that he is talking about Galatians chapter 4, in which Abraham <laughs> is held up as the example of faith clinging to the external work of Christ. Which was before uh, circumcision. Right. Which would have been a work of the law. Right. Most of us in this room could not quote more than 20 regulations from the Jewish law, 20 if you're lucky. Many of us would be fortunate to get through the Ten Commandments themselves. I'll give you 30 seconds to try in your own mind right now. But you go through the stealing and the lying and the adultery, and after you get through the murder and all of, all of the ones that are kind of familiar, you barely get to 10, and then you've only got 603 left. Well, there's a reason for that. Because they're poorly catechized. Any kid in our congregation, what, five, six, seven years old, could tell you what the Ten Commandments are from start to finish. Yeah, and, you know, it's because at our church, there is this culture of catechesis, and, and one that we're always, you know, we're always having to, you know, uh, poke the fire here to kind of uh, stoke it and get it, get it going. Uh, because, again, the natural man doesn't want to, to do these things. And so uh, even after church, we gather for coffee and we go through a very brief liturgy. We have the people recite a certain portion of the small catechism. We sing a hymn together, which emphasizes that point of the catechism that we just uh, recited together. I mean... Outside of all of the classes and all of the stuff that we do for children and uh, teenagers and the adults, it's, it's a, again, a, a culture of catechesis. And this is where I think the turn is being made, even though he is doing a great job on what it means to be justified before God. It's apart from the law. Uh, he's starting now to move down this antinomian road very clearly. Yes. Let's talk about the formative role of catechesis very quickly. The reason that you do this stuff over and over and over again is so that you don't have to be preaching a sermon to your congregation hoping that, well, maybe they remember like three or four of the Ten Commandments, right? They should know the Ten Commandments. They need to know the Ten Commandments. These are key words of God. And so there's so many issues here. Uh, it's not seeing the forest for the trees and all sorts of other stuff. But obviously, there's not a real culture of catechesis here. It's, it's really the culture of the clever preacher who's, you know, got his 45. In a book, yeah. How do you preach something like Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image 
and not tell the people that they would be breaking the first commandment if they were to do that. You know, as we, as Luther's explanation, we fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to, I mean, they feared God more than Nebuchadnezzar. They trusted God more than Nebuchadnezzar. They um, loved God. They loved God more than their own life. Right. So how can that not be held up, commandment number one in that story? How can uh, the third commandment with Daniel 6 and the lion's den, when the edict goes out from Darius, rather, you can't pray, Daniel goes up and he does it, he was not going to break the third commandment. I mean, how how can one even teach simple, you know, Bible stories, even with, to children, without, you know, highlighting the moral law that God has given? It's impossible, unless you're looking for something else in the stories. Which would be... Uh, David, David and Goliath, or, classic or, or, example. Well, or yeah, just everybody. You need to be more like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Or you need to be more like Daniel. You know, it's uh, now moral application becomes uh, becomes the uh, the thrust of the teaching, right? And sadly, it's not linked back. You know, here, here we have an episode in the history of God's people, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, in which we see these men faithfully applying the first commandment. If I, if I want to apply the first commandment faithfully in my own life, I don't need the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I need the first commandment. And then I need to think about the ways in which it touches my everyday life. Yeah, and sadly, in the evangelical world, that's run amok with youth groups. And then, of course, uh, run amok with uh, churches that really act like youth groups. Um, <laughs> I love that. No, that's exactly right. Oh, that's, yeah. That, that's, that would be a great way of explaining much of the phenomena of modern evangelicalism. Oh, yeah. Churches I just, that run like youth groups. Yeah, I just heard a sermon just two weeks ago here where the dad was the pastor and the son was the uh, youth pastor. And he says, I mean, point blank. Uh, the dirty little secret is, is that I run the church since my dad retired. I run the church like the youth group. I, I wanted to, I, I didn't want to go in the family business. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a pastor. Uh, and it wasn't like I was like, ooh, I don't want to do this. But it was, uh, I mean, it's, it's good, but uh, no. And I want to be a dentist. And I love, I love God. I love Jesus. And I was at a youth conference, and it was after we had moved to Wilmington. I was 17 years old, uh, around 17 at that time, and I can take you to the floor in the ballroom of the hotel and convention center that we were at, and I, I, they could change the carpet, everything. I can take you to the spot where I was. And it was after the, after the service, it was the time that I don't even remember what the altar call was for, but, you know, if you want more in your life or if you want more of God or like that. So I came down and I was kneeling down front with everyone else and God spoke to me and told me to stand up and look around. He said, this is what I want you to do. And I was like, you want me to be 
a, a youth pastor? I, I don't know anything about that because I am a youth. Uh, and, and God said, uh, this is what I want you to do. I don't think, and I've, I've said it before, I don't think that call's ever changed. I, I lead Rock Church the same way I led Flipside years ago. Nobody seems to have a problem with, with that. I mean, if, seriously, if you were a 60-year-old man and you were in that congregation, I mean, that would explain everything, would it not? It would. It would explain worship as entertainment. It would explain uh, cookies on the, on, the, on the low shelf or on the floor, all sorts of different it stuff. It would explain the, the style of, of preaching, the style of music, the, as we heard the guy uh, at the outset, uh, wanting to be relevant, asking the Lord to help him be, be relevant. Right. And mind you, these are, these are all uh, criteria for youth groups developed out of evangelicalism and not really out of Lutheranism, for sure. I mean, our youth are children of God heading to heaven. What do they need? They need God's Word. I think about it often, about how much time that I spent in youth groups and, you know, one in particular. I mean, that was the, that was the church of my teenage years. And, man. How little there was by way of teaching or what? Yes and no. There wasn't a systematic teaching that went, that went on. There certainly wasn't memorization that went on. There was no quizzes. There was no recitations. There was no public examination uh, that one worked towards. You know, and, and gratefully, the youth pastor whom I was uh, under... He pulled a, a group of guys aside, and we would go for a, it was Wednesday mornings at 6 o'clock. At uh, Denny's? Uh, no, not at Denny's. <laughs> it would meet at the, uh, the church, and uh, there was a systematic teaching that went on there. But, man, that was only for uh, just a handful of us. Mm. <clears throat> but as a whole, no, no. No, it, it was uh, come to Jesus and have your quiet time. Evangelical disciplines. The reason that it's so challenging for you is that you, my friend, most likely you are a Gentile. You were never given the law to begin with. And so you were invited to the new covenant, not Jesus plus Moses, Jesus plus nothing. And the fact that you cannot recall those laws is just another indication of how foolish it is for Gentiles to run around today pushing a mix of law and grace when they can't even quote the regulations in the law. It is a joke. Right. I mean, but see, he's being dismissive of the moral law. Even. Even. And that's the problem. Yeah. Right. I, I, yes. He's talking about the foolishness of the one group uh, trying to go back to the remaining 603 laws, right? But sort of putting into the bag anybody who is following the Ten Commandments or knows the Ten Commandments. Now, in all fairness, he's exactly right. I mean, it is not the case that we are saved by works of the law. However, the implication of this or the, the to draw this out doesn't mean that we should be ignorant of the moral law. And I think he's sort of reveling in their ignorance of the moral law. Like, isn't this great? And so you say, well, then why did God 
give us the law. I mean, clearly, we're not justified by the law. No one is justified by the law. We can't keep the law. We can't even memorize the law. We don't even have an awareness of the law. We're not made right with God by the law. So why did God bother? Well, Pastor Kearns, uh, let's see if we can take a stab at an answer. Yeah, I mean, why did God give the law? Clearly, there is, we would say, three uses of the law. I mean, this is, again, something we teach not just to our catechumens uh, who are in uh, formal catechesis, but we teach it earlier on, right? I mean, this there is a curb that goes out to all society that, as you said, uh, wanton expressions of sin or practices of sin. And this is why we have a government. This is why we have a military. This is why we have stop signs. To, I mean, we, you would have complete anarchy without the law. And so the second use, which is what he's actually been talking about, is the theological use. And this, is, this goes out to all sinners. Now, that would be me, and that would be you, and all sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the law is there to accuse, it is there to rebuke, it is there to uh, threaten, uh, it is there to curse, it's there to kill. And so the third use, not speaking of the gospel, because that's, that's actually what the second use is to lead us to, is to the gospel. The third use, though, is what he's not talking about, or at least hasn't yet, and that's the, that's the guide. And this is for the baptized believers. This is what gives expression to my love for the neighbor in a very concrete way. Right. So why did God give the law to Moses? It was so that the people of Israel would be curbed, so that they would see their sin, so that they would lead a righteous life. And this is exactly... Coram hominibus. Right. And this is exactly what Paul says. If it weren't for the law, I wouldn't even have a knowledge of sin. Right. Romans 7. And because the law exposes my sin, does this make the law bad, he goes on to say. And the answer is no. No, of course no, not. No. Just like an x-ray machine is not bad for pointing out the, the, the broken bone. Right. It's the broken bones problem. Well, I've already given you that mirror analogy. The law is like a mirror. It's like getting a diagnosis. When someone gets a diagnosis, that is not a treatment. When someone gets a diagnosis, they're being told by a doctor who knows what they're talking about, here is the accurate diagnosis. This is what you've got. This is what you've contracted. This is your issue. Now, that is not treatment. You don't want to walk out of that office just having a diagnosis. You want to make sure you wait for that doctor to tell you what the treatment is. And then you're going to take that little piece of paper and go down to the pharmacy and drive up to that window and hand it to that person. And 15 or 30 or an hour or two hours later, you're going to come back and you're going to get that prescription. It's been filled and that's your treatment. Well, the law provides a diagnosis, but it does not provide a treatment. Jesus Christ is that treatment. Yes, I mean, we would, have, we would like it if he were to say the gospel is what, what provides this treatment, but, you know, we're not, not going to fault him for saying this, right? Not at all. So he's right, but there's a reason why we're listening to this sermon. It's not to sit around and uh, just nitpick just little, little things. I mean, I'm telling you, he's going to go off the rails here pretty soon. But I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But again, let's remind everybody that the Christ he's talking about is the indwelling Christ. 
and that indwelling Christ is a good works machine. So it's it, it really he's he's not done his hearers a great favor. Uh, he's he's made them introspective. Do I have the indwelling Christ or not? It's not did Christ in 30 A.D. live a perfect life for me on my behalf. But it, that's fitting with the evangelical playbook, is it not? I mean, they're a bunch of mystics anyway. Right. And this is, uh, Oziandrianism is entirely mystic. What then is the purpose of the law? We see it here, Galatians 3. The law has become our tutor to lead us to the treatment, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. I mean, after you've got the treatment and you've been healed, why would you go back and say, Doctor, could you give me that diagnosis one more time? I can't remember what was it you said I had six weeks ago. You wouldn't make an appointment to hear the diagnosis over and over and over. You've got the treatment. In fact, you've been treated. In fact, you've been healed. So is this a problem with his theology, or is this a problem with the allegory that he's using? That's good. I'm not sure what the problem is, but this is definitely salvation in the rearview mirror, isn't it? Um, yeah, you're not healed! Right. As long as we bear this flesh before it is resurrected on the last day, we struggle against sin. And the natural man, right, the old Adam, is still alive and well. I, I don't know if it's Luther who says this, but, um, you know, the, the old Adam might be drowned every day, but that uh, sucker can swim. And the problem is he always comes burbling back up to the surface and he breaks out. Um, and the fact of the matter is that even even among the, the redeemed, think about King David. Think about the process that had to go on in his mind before he slept with Bathsheba. He had to push out of his head the claims that the Sixth Commandment had on him, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, he had to say that I fear losing out on this opportunity to sleep with this hot babe more than I fear God himself. He had to say I love myself more than I love God. I, you, get, you get the whole point. And so I think where he's going here is that we, we don't need to talk about the law anymore because you got Jesus. That's what he sounds like. Yeah. The fact of the matter is we always need the law because we must always see this is in our baptism. The old Adam is daily drowned through our baptism and a new man daily arises. Well, how is the old man daily drowned? He's drowned through the instrumentality of God's holy law, which exposes our sin. Yeah, this is why Luther says... <laughs> Uh, in his uh, morning and evening prayer in the rubrics there to quote the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments? I mean, why? why? Here's the analogy I'm thinking about. You see the, uh, the rockets, you know, they, they go up and they need all of this fuel to break gravity and get into Earth's outer atmosphere, whatever. Uh, and we repel that rocket once we once we reach a certain altitude we yeah. just you know jettison it yeah. and that's that's what it sounds like to me is that the law got us to christ uh, which is what he what he just said 
but then you you just you just jettison it and it can fall back into the ocean and hell it can just it can just sink there we don't we don't need it that's exactly what it sounds like to me you know one way to put this might be this the gospel teaches us very clearly that the law is useless for salvation it does not teach us that the law is useless how do you like that one that's good <laughs> And the Bible says, by his stripes, we have been healed, healed of our iniquities, healed of our sins, so that we are spiritually whole, and we don't need to go back to Moses and say, what's wrong with me, Mo? You know what? Mo would tell you, nothing. What's wrong with me, Mo? He would say, nothing. You're a slave of righteousness now. You're born again. You're born of the Spirit. You've been made complete, born from above You're a child of the resurrection. You're holy and righteous and blameless. And I only wish that the people of Israel back in my day could experience what you have now. The book of Hebrews says we have something greater. And the Old Testament believers, it says some of them were sawn in two. They hid in caves. They wore sheepskins and goatskins and they ran from people who were trying to kill them and they were dedicated and committed like you would not believe. And it says they did not receive what was promised and we have something better today. And so we're no longer under this tutor. We don't need the diagnosis over and over. We've been treated by Jesus Christ himself. What is the problem with the law and why is it given? Well, it's intended to curse people. That's what's so pathetic, so sad about people that want to mix law and grace today. They want to mix a curse with grace. They want to mix a curse with Jesus. It's great that you've met Jesus. Now let me curse you with the law. It's great that you're saved. Now let me put you in bondage. It's great that you're free, free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from punishment. But now let me put you under the yoke of slavery all over again. A slavery that not even the most devout Jewish forefather could ever keep anyway. Let me just hang that around your neck. It would be like this. All of those wearing purple this morning to celebrate your purpleness, to celebrate the fact that you're a holy and righteous priesthood. What if I came in here and just decided that I wanted to hang some sort of heavy garment over top of you, some thick, gray, dark garment over top of what you've decided to wear this morning? You came in here deciding to celebrate that you're a royal priesthood and a holy nation, that you got made purple by the God of the universe, and then I systematically go down the rows and say, yeah, but you need this, yeah, but you need this, yeah, but you need this, as I hoist some sort of heavy gray garment, a robe of sorts, over you, cloaking what you wore this morning. First of all, that's rude. I have no business dressing you. Second of all, it's ugly. It doesn't doesn't match. It doesn't look good. Third of all, you can barely walk with the weight of this heavy garment. That is what it's like for people to be coming to salvation, clothed with Jesus Christ. Then, lo and behold, they step in church. 
and they find a message that kills. The Bible says the law kills and the Spirit gives life. we got to be careful as ministers, all of us as ministers of the gospel, to make sure we are ministering things that free people. The truth sets you free. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Guys, if we don't go out of here every week being encouraged in the truth that sets us free, if we don't go out of here recognizing that we have an easy and light connection with God, then it is not the truth. We've done this before with this guy. He says things that are true, but it's on the heels of something that's, that's wrong. Right. So he's, he, all this stuff that we've just been listening to has been really, really pretty good, I would say. Wouldn't you? Well, I mean, there is, a, again, a distinction. He's making it sound like everybody there in the house is a minister. That's not true. They have Correct. different vocations okay. than his. I'm with you. And so this is typical of evangelicalism, of, of, of not rightly dividing, as it were, of making distinctions, which is really what theology is all about. Yeah, and it just takes no account. It, it really takes no, no account of the simul nature of, of the Christian, right? That we are simul justus et peccators, at one and the same time, saint and or righteous and a sinner. And, and, and yet, as you pointed out, what the simul needs, uh, what we all need, is God's law. To show that sin and to help mortify the flesh, absolutely. And he's saying... But that doesn't feed the spirit. I mean, that does not feed the new man. The law does not feed the new man. The new man is fed entirely by the gospel. And so what it, just, what it simply calls for is law and gospel proclamation. And as the new man is fed with the gospel, if we've already thrown out the sacrament of the altar, which is all gospel, and we know that there is no absolution of sins, which is all gospel, not at this church... If you've thrown out these gifts that the Lord has given, then all you're left with is what? The Word. Yeah, and the Word's good. I mean, there's no question about that. Praise God that that is effective. Right. Right? Uh, Efficacious. It's salvific. It does what it says. But wouldn't you say it's like they're limping along and they're saying, we've got all that we need. And they don't. And they don't. I am not saying that world is easy. It is not easy and light out there, but our connection with God is a free gift, and it is light and easy, and it sets us free every single time. Don't settle for two garments. My friend John Lynch was here, and he spoke on the two coats. You remember the two coats? He took off the old coat, and he put on the new coat. But one thing he didn't do, at the suggestion of someone who came up afterwards, they actually said to him, hey, I kept waiting. I kept waiting for you to try to put on the old coat over top of the new coat to show that it wasn't a good fit and that it didn't look right. You see, that's what happens when we get to know Jesus by grace through faith, and then we start adding in self-improvement and rule-keeping and measuring how we're doing, And in fact, that person who suggested that easily convinced Mr. Lynch, and he's going to include the two coats combined going forward in all of his talks. He said, hey, that gives me a full five minutes to add on now. (laughs) Whoa. Galatians chapter 3 says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by what? All things written in the book of the law to perform them. 
So I don't know what you've heard about the law, but I grew up. I grew up in Virginia, which is below, okay, below the Mason-Dixon line. It is definitely considered the South, okay? So we're in that Bible belt there in Virginia. And then I went to college in South Carolina, went to graduate school in Georgia. I have done my time in the South, and it was definitely the Bible belt, Because what I was told was, it's great that you've got Jesus, now keep those Ten Commandments. And so I was told that you were supposed to lift out, go back to the Old Testament law, to the first five books, to the Torah, and just lift out the Ten Commandments, put them over here on a pedestal, and do your best to keep the Ten Commandments. Because my goodness, friend, if you are keeping the Ten Commandments, you are a good Christian. Coram hominibus. This is, again, uh, a formal theological education would help this guy so much. It, 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 it's uh, mind-blowing. And what a treasure, Pastor Kearns, that we, that we have received from our Lutheran forebears who did a lot of hard work, a lot of hard theological work, and then faithfully passed this down one seminarian at a time. Um, so that it can be faithfully passed down one catechumen at a time in an evangelical Lutheran church. But what he didn't say is, oh great, you believe in Jesus Christ, now keep these Ten Commandments so that you know that you're going to be saved. If that had been the message, we would say, oh my gosh. He was taught incorrectly. Correct. But if he was taught, you're saved, you're a Christian, and you should keep the Ten Commandments, well, yeah, obviously. And it's not as if, Anybody went combing through, you know, the whole Torah. Let's just pick a handful of verses that we think really ought to apply to everybody. The Jews called these the Decalogue, the Decalogos, categorized in Judaism as these critical, important words of God addressed to all humanity. We must live according to the Decalogue. Then Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount He preaches at length on the Decalogue and says, this applies to you as Christians. Of course Christians need to keep the Ten Commandments, not for their salvation, but for their righteousness before men. Man, this guy should just read uh, Luther's, um, all he's got to do is read Luther's preface to his Galatians commentary to understand the, the different righteousnesses that God expects of us. Now, there's only one problem with that. Everybody I knew was working on Saturday. I mean, everybody I knew, they were trimming hedges, they were mowing lawns, they were doing yard work, they were catching up on chores, they were doing emails. So we, in fact, were doing the nine commandments. What he fails to do is see that the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, is simultaneously a ceremonial commandment the day on which the Jews are required not to work, and a moral commandment uh, that this is a time, there needs to be time set aside for God. So what's abolished in Christ? What is abolished in Christ is the ceremonial law. All the ceremonial laws pointed to him. And in fact, Jesus points out, Jesus himself shows himself to be the fulfiller of the Sabbath. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So this, this is a canard. It's, it's a bad argument that, that 
people work on Saturday. The Lord has not firmly stated for his New Testament people that there is a specific day on which we must worship. If we lived in a, say, a, I don't, I don't know, let, let's just pick some crazy society where the days off are Wednesday and Thursday, right? Or Wednesday. Well, guess what would be the for the Christians there the day of their worship? It would be Wednesday. There's nothing wrong with that. But the emphasis of the law itself is to say, you need this time. It is the Lord who created us who says, you can go about six days without me, and you need me. And so I want you to stop. You're receiving in the divine service, passively, you're receiving these gifts so that you can then go out and actively love and serve your neighbor. According to the Ten Commandments. Coram hominibus. So you start saying, well, what's the logic in that? What do I, as an average human being on this planet, how do I have a right to pick and choose from the law when Galatians 3 says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by how much? All things written in the book of the law. And by the way, the book of the law does not mean the Ten Commandments. It means the whole thing, the Torah. The first five books and all regulations contained within, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. You better perform them or you're cursed. So do you see how laughable it is then that 2,000 years later, west of Israel, thousands of miles across the Atlantic, here we are in the great state of Texas, mostly 90-some percent of us as Gentiles, Gentile American citizens, Gentiles, non-Jews, and we're trying to bring 10 things from Moses into our Jesus. That's because Jesus brought him into Jesus. I mean, again, we, we just got to go back. He, he's not getting the Coram Deo, Coram Hominibus distinction at all. Uh, number two, uh, he, he's picking and choosing. He's not actually reading the whole New Testament. Number three, he hasn't even answered the question, how, does, how do my works of love have any form? What's the form of my works of love, right? Well, it's the Ten Commandments. I'm not subjecting myself to the Decalogue in order to earn salvation through it. I'm doing it for the sake of my neighbor. But he says that's laughable. Right, because I've only chosen 10 out of the 613, which Jesus himself did. A. B, because I'm not observing all 10 of those 10 because I apparently break the Sabbath in his mind because he can't make a distinction between the ceremonial side of that law and the moral side of that law. I mean, this guy, he's, a mad, he's got an argument. This is what I always appreciate about him. He's pointing us to scriptures. It's good. But he's, a, he's just a, like a theological plate of spaghetti. Which means what? I mean, I like spaghetti. What, oh, what? I love spaghetti. Well, what I'm talking about is how the noodles go every which way unorganized, you know, and actually maybe it's more like he's got, you know, he's got uh, spaghetti and linguine and uh, some elbow macaroni in there. You know, it's just, just a mess. So it's a goulash. It's a goulash. It's a goulash. goulash. And the Bible says you can't do it. You're not allowed to do it. It's an all or nothing proposition. It's not choose your own adventure. It's not pick your favorite parts. It's an all or nothing proposition. Adventure, And so 
It's not very adventurous when you end up dead, the law kills. James chapter 2 says the same thing, guys. If you haven't seen this passage before, it is a doozy. Look at it. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Do you see that? That I don't get to pick my favorite thing. It's not like the buffet line at the Chinese restaurant. I don't get to grab the mushu pork but avoid the egg rolls. No, you get everything available whether you like it or not, whether you're allergic or not, whether it makes you sick or not. You take the whole buffet of the law, 613 entrees, and you got to take them all. It's all or nothing. If you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all of it. You guys ever had to relate to a perfectionist and everybody with a spouse says, yeah. <laughs> because our definition of what perfectionism is, is likely the three things she wants me to do or the five things he wants me to do. And if I don't do those things, he is ticked off. And if she doesn't do those things, I am disappointed. And so... We live around perfectionism, perfectionistic attitudes, standards to, to rise to. If you're in the workplace, you get promoted when you do certain things. If you're in academia as a student, you get grades when you achieve certain things. I mean, this is the way planet Earth seems to operate. That's because it operates under the law. And as long as Christians remain on this Earth, they too uh, must operate underneath the law. But again... Make the distinction, coram mundo, not coram deo. Yeah, he can't really seem to separate these two at all. I mean, he, yes, he's right before God, we cannot keep the law because, again, going to yet another analogy, one I used actually yesterday, I mean, I throw the rock uh, and break the window. It's a, it's a pain window. But, but the whole thing has to be replaced, right? Even though one little area has the, the hole in it, the whole thing is, is broken. And before God, that is the case. And this is why we're so grateful for Jesus, who fulfilled all of the law for us. And this is the gospel message. However, now that I am saved, as you say, because we live under the law, this gives concrete expression towards the neighbor. Good. And you know what? I just want to read. Um, I'm, I'm going to read from ESV, uh, Galatians chapter 5. He's been making a lot of, uh, of Galatians, but this is, this is an important passage. Because this is what Paul says in Galatians 5. It starts at uh, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. No, no. Okay, so how? G give me something more than that because well, it uh -huh. sounds like it's emotion. Here he goes. Verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So what Paul does there is he takes a summary of the second table of the law, right? Uh, you love your neighbor as yourself for all intents and purposes and says um, this is the form that our outward life toward our neighbor must take okay 
Uh, so that means I should obey authority? Uh-huh, it does. Th- that means I shouldn't kill anybody? Yep, that's correct. It means you shouldn't kill anybody, and you should actually help them in their physical need. It means that I shouldn't have sex with my neighbor's wife? Uh-huh, that's exactly what it means. You can't do that. In fact, you should do everything you can to support his marriage to her. And the list just goes on and on and on. That's the form that love takes. And Paul himself exhorts the Galatians to this life. What is his problem? <laughs> Farley says it's laughable. Well, he, I guess, I guess, <laughs> does his Bible get, did it get chapter five <laughs> trimmed out of it? Right. But I want you to imagine being under the same roof with a perfectionist who has 613 standards for you to meet. I mean, you talk about eggshells, man. That is some serious eggshells that you're walking on. And that's why we need to see that God has shown us the the stringency of the law so that we will choose grace. He has shown us how difficult and impossible the law is so that we won't flirt with it. We're not made to flirt with law. Flirting with Moses is cheating on Jesus. We're married to Jesus raised and seated next to God Himself in the resurrected Christ, one with the Lord, not so that we can go back to Moses, but so that we can trust Jesus alone. All right, so if this isn't antinomianism, at its clearest, I I don't know what is. I don't either. Everything he said is absolutely true, coram Deo, before God. I mean, we're just probably going to end up beating the tom-tom on this thing again and again and again. Um, and it's just this huge gap in his, in his sort of theological constellation. He doesn't, he doesn't understand how the New Testament exhortations to live a moral life actually apply to the life of the Christian. And he's forced then to cut them out of the scriptures. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We couldn't say it any better, could we? Through the law comes what? The diagnosis, and that's it. The knowledge of the problem, the knowledge of sin. Yep, yep, that's, he's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you're saying it so nonchalantly, he's right, but you know what's going on in his mind. Right. You know what's going on in his mind. Or, you know, another interesting thing is I can't imagine that he's going to jump in his car after church, uh, drive down the street, break every stop sign, you know, bur- bur- uh, burn through every intersection. Go into the restaurant, tell everybody to get out of my way. I'm going to be first in line. Grab the guy across from the counter, drag him to his face and say, I want a burrito. For nothing. For nothing. Yeah, yeah, right. right? <laughs> I mean, that's not what he's going to do. We know this. And so... There's something operative here. He knows, he, he, like deep, deep inside of himself, he knows better. He may actually even intellectually know better, but the way he's talking about it, it's coming. Ac- what I want to say is that best case scenario, this is just utterly confusing for the people who are listening. Okay, and worst case scenario, I want to say if it's a half truth, it's a whole lie. Correct. This guy is lying. Correct. He is telling them that the law of God, which, as you have pointed out, 
Jesus lives out, but he also teaches, and the apostles come along and teach the exact same thing, and then, of course, the church fathers just echo the exact same thing. Look, man, you can see this in the Didache. You can see the Ten Commandments in the Didache, right? So the church has been uh, erroneously teaching this for two millennia? Give me a break. So if we're justified by faith, how do we know if we have enough faith? I mean, you know, we could get neurotic about this. A lot of Christians would say, I wish I had more faith. I'm not sure I have enough faith. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I don't believe hard enough. Well, remember the comfort that the Son of God gives us. He tells us that faith, even the size of a mustard seed, is enough. And what we like to say around here is it's not the size of your faith. It's where you flick it, right? A little mustard seed-sized faith, you just flick that right into the death and resurrection of Christ, and that's what saves. It's not the size of what you flick. It's not the size of the seed. It's not the size of the faith. It's the object of the faith. And so we take that mustard seed dependency, and we say, I'm going to place my dependence right there in the Son of God. I believe He is who He says He is. I believe He did what He said He did. I believe that's enough. It is finished. So therefore, I'm a forgiven person with eternal life forever, and He will never, ever leave me. He's a promise keeper. He's a perfect promise keeper, and He says He'll never leave me. Coram Deo. But this leaves the people. I mean, even though it's good Coram Deo preaching here, If anybody were to raise their hand, because clearly they could raise their hand and talk back to this guy, this self-appointed pastor, raise their hand and say, so what? Or, now what? What's he going to lead them to? This is why in Lutheran teaching, you have that quorum deo settled first, but then as a result of that, it leads to quorum mundo. I mean, it It goes somewhere. And this is where Luther talks about how it's a a busy, active, living faith. But we're flicking our mustard seed into Christ. That's not where he calls us to flick our mustard seed. Right. I I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Something grows out of this mustard seed. That is correct. I think what he's doing uh, in his defense is saying you can't rely on the works that come as a result of the growth of the mustard seed. And, and we would entirely agree with him on that. But that's a quorum hominibus thing. Keep Park them on earth where they belong. But when you want to relate to God, you've got to relate to God through Christ and the gospel. So what does Romans chapter 3 mean when it says we establish the law? Because if you're following so far, I mean, Paul said we're justified by faith, not by law, that we're made right as a free gift, not by what we do. But Romans 3 says we establish the law. I mean, check this out. It says, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So what what does Paul mean? Another translation says we uphold the law. And I like that a lot because uphold reminds me of hold up. If we uphold something, we hold it up. We hold it up and establish that it is what it is. So watch this now. This is very important in understanding this passage But it's also very important in understanding that we here are not law bashers 
and we are not law haters. Watch what we do as gracers. Watch what we do as new creations in Jesus Christ. We say 613 regulations. That is perfect and impossible. Therefore, I need Jesus. Now, look what I just did. In turning my back on the law, I turned my back because I recognized it is perfect, it is flawless, it is blameless, it is holy, it is good, and I can't live up to it. I can't keep it. So as I turn away from law and say yes to Jesus, I have just established, I have just held up the law and established that it is perfect and impossible. No way I need God's grace. Sounds pious, but I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. Do you? No, I think that, I think he's created another mess here, hasn't he? Um, and he's uh, ignoring how, where Paul is going, the trajectory of Romans. Um, he's going to wind up in chapter 6 talking about us being dead to sin uh, and alive uh, to God in Christ. And and it means that we're alive to, to righteousness. So uh, Paul uses these, this terminology, um, uh, peripateo, and uh, so, so uh, peripatumen en kainotetis does. We walk about in newness of life. Well, that walking about is, is a term that Paul uses uh, for the daily conduct of, of our lives. So yeah, we're dead to sin. Okay, so if I don't sin anymore, what am I doing? I'm following the law. Is that going to save me, Pastor Kearns? No, absolutely not. Why am I doing it? Because something has taken place. You have believed the promises. You are a new creation. You, you are a baptized child of God. You desire now something you didn't desire before. Now you desire to fulfill the law of God. To what end? It's for my neighbor. Exactly, for my neighbor. It's not for God, right? Anyway, the point is that he's missing where this thing is going. Back to your question. I don't think that's what Paul is saying at the end of Romans chapter 3. That's, you're exactly right. That's not what he's saying. And so what Paul is saying is, are we nullifying the law? Are we killing the law? No. Do you know that the law does not die? We die to the law. The law still convicts the unbeliever. Every unbeliever out there still needs the doctor to give a diagnosis. The, the doctor doesn't die. The diagnosis is not made null and void. The diagnosis is still there for any unbeliever who looks and recognizes they fall short of the glory of God. The doctor still gives the diagnosis. You need life. You are dead. You're addicted to sin. You're a slave of sin. You can't attain to this. You can't even get close. You need a solution. And that diagnosis is available every day. Not a jot nor a tittle of the law will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. The law is available to every unbeliever as conviction. Coram Deo. Here's... Let's just pause here. He he is really coming out as a full fledged antinomian uh, in the in the Lutheran style, um, and I don't mean to not that Lutherans embrace this, but this is the this is the exact battle that they had with Agricola, and Agricola asserted that the law only applied and only needed to be preached to people outside of the church caught in heathendom, and it had no application for those inside of the church. Well, now, this is a problem because what, 
um, who's as Paul's writing the letter to the Romans, uh, who are these Romans? They are Christians. When he's writing to the Galatians and tells them to love their neighbor as their self, uh, who, is, who is he writing to? He's writing to Christians. Uh, when Jesus is talking to those gathered around him on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, who is he talking to? He's talking to believers in Christ and applying the law to them. And so this is just a just just like biblical illiteracy or uh, kind of like um, he knew where he knew where the answer was going to come out before he started answering the question. And he's marshalling all the evidence around it in a very tidy, neat way, ignoring an awful lot of stuff out there. But when you believe you die to the law, who dies? Not the law. You die to the law, being cut off from the law, not communicating with the law, not looking to the law. All right, if I'm not mistaken, what he's getting ready to say now is this is complete antinomian. This is it. If you hadn't figured out what antinomian is thus far, here it is. Not looking to the law for instruction or counsel or guidance. You are then married to the resurrected Christ. You are the bride of Christ looking to him for instruction. So this is the indwelling Christ again. And now this indwelling Christ is going to become a new Moses in a sense. Is he not? If he's giving me instruction... Or, or is where is he going? I, I don't know. He is saying that once you, you've looked in that mirror, and a little while back he said, choose. We won't worry about that. But once one hears the gospel, you don't need to go back to Moses. You go to Christ. Well, here's the problem. Yet again, somehow or another, Christ is going to give you something that wasn't already delivered. I mean, it's right. the... I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? right? Who was in the burning bush? Who was in the garden? Who was on top of Mount Sinai giving the law? I mean, this is the Word of God. And now we're going to go to the Word of God made flesh as if he's going to have a new message? But this is the problem that Roman Catholicism brought into late medieval theology that Luther and the Reformers reacted against. They called... The Sermon on the Mount, the Evangelical Councils, right? And we've talked about this. You have heard it said of old, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, if you've looked at, at your brother with hatred in your heart, you've already committed murder um, and so on and so forth. And so basically what they do is they turn Jesus into a new, new and law higher lawgiver, law mm-hmm. right? So it's not Moses uh, and it's actually a, a harsher, more difficult law. But what they're not getting is that Jesus is articulating the same exact law that Moses gave. He's elaborating on it. And or say, sharpening it. That's well, the analogy I used yesterday, that they had the Pharisees had, had dulled it over time. Sure. So the Pharisees had dulled it. God hadn't dulled it. Right. It didn't, sh- it didn't get pulled out of the scabbard dull. Right. It was sharp in the first right. place. Yeah. I'm just shocked. I mean, this, this is really bad stuff. Yeah. That's why I wanted you to hear it. And I thought also, too, it would go well with our last summer series in regard to looking at the uh, formula. On law and gospel. Yeah. Yes, this works just perfectly. And actually with the righteousness of faith before God. So you got to check that one out as well. Uh, he is committing the Oseandrian error. So the law doesn't die, but I die to the law. 
And in looking at the perfect standard that Moses brought down from that mountain, I am establishing that the law is perfect and impossible. Therefore, no way I need Jesus. So, I said it before, but it bears repeating. It is only those who are looking to the grace of God that truly respect the law. Anybody else who remains looking at Moses, looking at the law, saying, I'll take this one and I'll take that one, but I don't need this one and I don't need that one. I'll take this one and I'll take that one. That is not respecting God's law. When you turn your back on the law and say, I need Jesus because that is a no-way system, you are the only one who is truly respecting the law at that point. Only in a sense. Basically, what he's instructing us to do is take that mirror that we've been looking in and break it. I can't look at that mirror anymore. I must only look at Christ. Well, you can only, the only reason you ever want to look at Christ is because you look in the mirror. And so, it, it, again, it's this continuous application of God's two words to the human being, uh, even the converted. Why? Because we are still simul justi et peccatores. We are still righteous people and sinners at one and the same time. And my flesh doesn't want me to have Christ. So it must have the law applied to it so that I realize my own predicament and flee to Jesus. All right, well, we'll finish with this. The reason we gathered here this morning around this lie was the fact that James chapter 2 says justified by works three different times. Now, I have heard some slick talkers in my day. I have heard some people say, well, James says justified by works, but he just means uh, justified before people, you know. Uh, apparently, Rahab wanted to look really good for the uh, fellow citizens around her in the apartments next door. Uh, apparently, Abraham was real concerned with his friends and what they thought of him. So it's just justified uh, in front of other people. It's not really about justified in front of God. I'm not buying that because this passage says, can this kind of faith save a person? This is about getting justified before God and getting saved. So can you look at this passage and see why Martin Luther freaked out? I mean, look at this. Verse 21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son? Then verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then you see, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the spies, the messengers, and sent them out by another way? So three times in this passage, three times the phrase justified by works appears, and you got to think maybe Brother Paul, if he ever got a hold of this, he might have scratched his head for a full five minutes. Brother James, what are you saying? And then Martin Luther, more than a thousand years later, Martin Luther, I mean, here he is scratching his head, and his conclusion is, uh, let's get rid of it. Yeah, that's a good interpretation. Just throw it in the garbage. And so you have to ask, what is going on here? Now, again, clearly to me, this is not about getting right in front of your buddies. This is not about being justified in front of your friends and relatives. This is all about God. So uh, let me just propose this, that there's a simple understanding of this. James happens to mention that demons believe, 
right? Demons believe, even demons believe some good stuff. Let me tell you what they believe. They believe that there's one God. We call that monotheism. So all the demons are monotheists, meaning they know the truth. Deep down, they know there's one God. They also know Jesus hung on a cross, so they believe the cross happened. They also know Jesus rose from the dead. So they also know Jesus is the Son of God. So therefore, they're all Christians, right? I mean, they know He's the Son of God. They know He died on a cross. They know He rose from the dead. So ta-da, they're saved. The demons are saved. Wait, what? No. They're not saved because they have a set of beliefs or a set of facts that they know, but there's something they haven't done. What is it that we've done that they haven't done? They know what we know. What is it that we've done that they haven't done? They haven't opened the door of their lives. Sound familiar? What did Rahab do? Rahab opened the door to the messengers. We keep saying this over and over. The reason that Rahab opened the door to the messengers, Coram Mundo, is because she believed. Coram Deo! Right. It's, it's a result of the precedent faith. And you've talked about this too, Luther's quote, his wonderful quote about how, how faith is a busy, active, living thing, and it's just always performing good works. Again, those good works are seen coram mundo and avail nothing coram deo. Demons haven't offered themselves to God to be made new, new creations. Sound familiar? What did Abraham do? Abraham offered his son Isaac. So what James is saying is, is that there is theology out there. Even the demons believe some correct theology. But faith without decision is dead faith. This is the thing with theology. You get that foundation wrong and you start putting more bricks on top of that. It's just going to get so whacked up. Right. Yeah, we got quite the Jenga tower going here, don't we? <laughs> right. Jenga yeah. tower. <laughs> yeah, so, so think about the slippage here. Demons didn't offer themselves up but Abraham offered his son up. So he's, he's hanging, uh, the hook is hanging, uh, offering. Um, Rahab opened the door. The door, right? And this is like make the decision for Jesus this kind of stuff. This uh, is Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. Right. Open up. So he, you tell us, uh, listeners, uh, who is doing the mental gymnastics here on, on the James passage? Really, uh, the mental gymnastics are occurring in this fanciful non-exegesis where it's kind of like word association, basically. Well, then it's, you know, your cut-and-paste Bible again because it's, uh, you know, he's throwing in decision. Right. Yeah, it's cut and paste. It's actually he, what he's done is he's pasted in decision, right? There's nothing here about decision. These are just works, active works of faith that is kindled and alive in the heart of Abraham and Rahab. The demons have dead faith because there's no decision attached to it. 
No, the demons, the demons have dead faith because they're demons. Oh, I'm starting to lose it. I really am. I can, I can feel it like getting in my chest. Uh, is it getting tight? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, it's also the case that Christ did not suffer for uh, the angels. And the writer to the Hebrews makes this point. Um, he did not assume angelic nature. He assumed human flesh to redeem humans. Well, it's what I said yesterday in the sermon, right? It It's not for angels that Jesus came and, and died on a cross, was buried and rose again. And it's certainly not for angels that he gives us his very body and blood to drink and right. eat. Right. And, and the water poured in baptism is not poured over angels. No, right. No. And what we see in James chapter 2 is that we are justified before God when we open the door of our lives like Rahab and when we offer ourselves to God just like Abraham offered Isaac. That is so slippery. And we said earlier on, this is just word association. Well, what's fascinating is, is he just got through saying how he's heard a lot of slippery preachers and I'll be doggone. Yeah, this is really bad exegesis. Farley McFarley at it again. <laughs> so what is salvation? Is salvation saying, you know, when the Spirit of God stands at the door and knocks, do we just stand at the door and say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, absolutely, you're God. You're God of all, creator of all things. Jesus died on a cross, absolutely. Jesus rose from the dead, no question about it. Is that what we do standing at that door? At some point, we make that decision. If we're in Christ today, it's because at some point, we made that decision to reach out and turn that doorknob and open the door like Rahab did. And that is a living faith, not a dead faith. Wasn't it the second article that we went through in our summer series that talked about the fact that our free will is not as free as he's making it out to be. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty free-ranging will here, isn't it? Check me if I'm wrong. Paul didn't make a decision for Jesus, did he? Didn't he go to a tent meeting well, in I, Damascus? Wasn't he headed to a, a revival meeting? And <laughs> Wasn't he on a road to go and kill Christians? Or at least bring them back, the yeah. ones that, uh, uh, that he captured, bring them back, right? right? Bring them back bound to the council. Women, children? Yep. Wasn't just the men he was after. So wasn't he diametrically opposed to Jesus at that point in time? Yeah, and I would say that uh, this is why Jesus says, uh, why are you persecuting me? Hmm. Which in his mind, he was persecuting these followers of the way. Right. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So he was against Jesus. So he didn't make a, a free will offering of his life to open the door. So when Jesus showed up, he was the one who converted Paul? Is, is... Yeah, typically Jesus has to come to those who are dead in their sins and their trespasses. Oh, I see. Huh. Am I helping you? I think you are. <laughs> and but, but, But here's our point. He's been pointing to Paul all along here, and the great hero of faith, Paul himself, is not a decision maker when it comes to being brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're then insinuating that he's 
coming up with a, a new theology. A novel. Mm, maybe it's a novelty, something that doesn't exist in the scriptures. Hmm. Could be. We made a decision to say, I need new life, therefore my old life needs to die, therefore I need to be put on an altar of sorts, kind of like Abraham put Isaac on an altar. I need to be put on an altar called a cross. Galatians 2.20, I need to be crucified with Christ. I need to be born again. So I am turning the doorknob, opening and offering myself to God so that I am crucified, buried, and raised to newness of life. And that is living faith. The demons will never do it. They've never done it. That's what sets us apart. That's how we are born again. So what we have is a living faith, not a dead faith. Conclusion. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. You want to know the works? They were saying, show me the works. Got to do the works. Want to be justified by works? He says, this is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. Whoa. No, it's not whoa. It's quorum Deo. Precisely, quorum Deo. And is Jesus, let's talk about this. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Um, is that an objective genitive or a subjective genitive, work of God? In other words, is God the doer of the work or is God the object of the work or is he just the author of the notion that there's a work? Um, you know, good theology actually would say that this is a what's known as a subjective genitive. This is God's work toward you that you believe in him whom he has sent. So again, this just just destroys all this decision crap. And Ephesians 2.8, right? By grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. Not of yourself? Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Not of yourself. Not of yourself. Not at all. Not of your free will. Not of the free will, which is dead in trespasses and sins. Not of your decision-making ability. No, because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. All these is are you? I know that this is very upsetting for you, Pastor Kearns, <laughs> to find this out. <laughs> it's but actually quite this, glorious. It is very glorious uh, because if you have faith, it means that God, in all earnestness, gave you that faith. Why to save you from your sin and from death and from the devil's power? And this is why I cannot boast before God. In my salvation. No, because he did it all. He did it all. He died on the cross. If I decide, can I boast? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. And people do it all the time when they say, I found Jesus. Exactly. Yep. Well, aren't we glad that you found Jesus? (laughs) (laughs) Where's Waldo? (laughs) Right. Like like Jesus was under the couch with some Cheerios (laughs) and pennies. (laughs) Look at what I found. (laughs) 1 John 5, these things I have written to you who do what? Who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's talking about living faith and saving faith. He's talking about believing and opening the door, believing and offering yourself. That's what James says also. Where? Where does he ever, 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 ever talk about offering oneself and making a decision for Jesus? I mean, this is... This is really, so again, we go back to this thing that, you know, he, he knew the answer to the question before he started answering it. He, he took the, the civil law and the moral law 
and uh, you know ceremonial law. He didn't really talk about it that I know of, but but he adds all that law in the smoothie, and now he's putting like a you know, like a, a shot of like protein or something, like a powder in there of decision theology. Right. He's mixing all of that up. But the problem is that he has created he has created for them the most impossible of all laws, uh, which is as somebody who is dead in trespasses and sins, somebody who whose will is diametrically opposed to God, to do a one eighty. Now, here's the problem with that. Uh, it, it is in the nature of a will to will. When the will wills what is against God, right, when that's its nature, it can't will the opposite. It's like you've got a, an aircraft carrier going through the Pacific at 40 knots, you know, an hour, if they can go that fast, and giving it a command to turn on a dime and head back to Hawaii. It ain't going to happen. And that's what this decision theology is asking people to do yeah but pastor brush you're clearly not knowledgeable of the of the picture of jesus knocking on the door of that cottage i mean there there's not a doorknob on the outside the door the doorknob it's on the inside and and i've got to you've got to open it i've got to do it yeah where do they get that image from where where is that from i mean is it from revelation 3 Mm -hmm. okay so why because he's talking to Christians already, right? right? And, and this is where the will becomes active and cooperative with the Holy Spirit. Right. It's, uh, it's not the door of your house. It's the church. Right. So what did we see today? Well, we looked at the second lie in our series. There is a lie out there that you're justified by first having faith in Jesus and then collecting enough good works. But I want to remind you, how many times did Abraham put Isaac on an altar? How many times? Once. How many times did Rahab open the door for the spies? Once. So this is not about a lifetime of works. It's not about collecting a bunch of good stuff. It is about faith plus decision. Isn't his whole point Jesus plus nothing? And here we've got faith plus decision. And look, we, we are agreeing with him 100% about what he's saying uh, about faith in Jesus alone is what saves. Nothing else. There are, there are no works to be added to that. That will not enhance your salvation. It won't contribute to your salvation. It is, ev- is just what Jesus ooh, has ooh, done. Ooh, okay, call okay, on okay, me. Call on okay, me. Pastor Kearns. Now what? As a result of that, now what? Now I'm going to live a life of good works. And what is it that guides me in that? Up, up, up. I got Pastor Kearns. Can I answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pastor Bruss. Is it the Ten Commandments? It is, Pastor Bruss. Very good. <laughs> what? <laughs> why, why is this so hard? I mean, is it? I understand why he is reacting to what he grew up with. Okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Absolutely. he's realized something is amiss here. Right. But it's like, again, it's it's this, um, and it happens over, all the time, right? This this overreaction to something that was wrong, and then in that overreaction, you what overcorrect, and you actually 
you know, as we say, fall off the horse on the other side. Yeah, Luther talks about the drunk peasant uh, who <laughs> starts to slip off the left side and corrects himself and, you know, ends up falling off the right side of the horse. This is exactly what's happened here. And, and um, you know, it's, um, we've talked about this, uh, right? Nothing, nihil ultra scriptum, nothing beyond what is written. And basically... He's heard this bad stuff. The legalism, we might right. categorize it as. Good. And yeah, that's exactly it. And he's reacting against that. And now he's become antinomian. Right. And the problem is he doesn't stick with 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. If he had just stuck, if he had come to the scriptures and ask them what is the answer to this question instead of instead of already coming up with the overreaction and then and then sort of squeezing the scriptures into them he would have ended up in a much better place and i mean uh, there's plenty of places to go but like you think about something where david is extolling the law of god in psalm 119 <laughs> right. over and over and over i and over. love your law right right so what would he say what would he say would he categorize them as david as he didn't get it he he just didn't get it like us in the new covenant get it right I, he must have to is that old the old dispensation or something is that is that what's going on there is it uh yeah, and the, even the um, the macarisms pronounced over the, uh, you know, in Psalm 1, blessed is the man, uh, right? Uh, he meditates on God's Torah day and night. And what is he like? He's like a tree planted by the streams of waters whose leaf does not wither. The truth, you're justified by opening the door and offering yourself to Jesus by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the truth that sets us free. You're not a double talker. You're not giving us two messages. We don't have to wait until heaven to understand. We can know the truth right now. And Father, we thank you that you have done it all. There's nothing we bring to the table except yes. There's nothing we bring to the table except wow and thank you and yes as we open that door as we offer ourselves to you and you do the transforming, we thank you, Father, that salvation is free, that we could never earn it. We respect the law and we turn our back on it. We respect the law and we pivot toward Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word. In Jesus' name. Man, I, I didn't want to let him pray for us, but uh, it, you learn a lot just by simply listening to that prayer don't don't you yeah it's a great summary of his sermon so that uh you you love it when preachers um pray their sermon <laughs> that's the it's kind of like the joke i used to make about the guy who used to give announcements at a, a church years ago he was uh you know he was like the executive pastor but he was in charge of like big events and so i always remember him you know he'd get up and he would uh he would make the announcement about some you know gathering uh that was going to take place later in the month or something you know and so then when he would go to pray uh he would kind of pray a summary of the announcement right. dear lord we just we just thank you so much for today and we 
we prayed for this gathering that we're going to have at Out of the Park on September 27th. And Tickets uh, are for sale. <laughs> <laughs> and how everybody who's got a name uh, with in, in, in the last name ending A through H <laughs> are supposed to bring a meat item. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's what we have this clown doing. He's summarizing yeah. his sermon yeah. and his prayer. Yeah. So he did. He did not bring clarity to this question. Um, and he, uh, I, I will contend, laid. So the Lutherans teach that the law still applies to the life of the Christian, coram hominibus. I contend that he has laid a more difficult law on all of humanity by turning the pivotal point into this decision that it is impossible to make. Mind you, folks, to decide for Jesus is to fulfill the first commandment. It's to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you can't do it. Again, this is a theological plate of spaghetti. Or goulash. Or goulash. Goulash, exactly. That's the better one. <laughs> that is. Well, yeah. Pastor Bruss, I thought you would uh, enjoy uh, getting a chance to, to listen to Farley McFarley again. And uh, I will keep tabs on his Twisted Scripture series and um, maybe come back at you with something else that he presents to his congregation. We would look forward to it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.